So did you ever go to summer camp? Any kind of summer camp anywhere? Did you go to a, maybe a church camp or maybe you went to a sports camp or a 4-H camp? Or maybe if you didn't go to camp, you've sent your, your kids or your grandkids to a summer camp somewhere? Well, there's something about summer camp that can be hard for some kids, and that's making friends. Sometimes it's hard to make friends at camp. Now, there's a few approaches that you can take. There's the awkward approach where you just walk up to some kid and go, hey, you want to be my friend? That sometimes doesn't work very well. There's also the blackmail approach. Hey, I'll give you all my snack packs all week long if you will be my friend. Sometimes that actually does work. When you're talking about pudding, people might be your friend. Then there's always the pushy approach where somebody just comes up and says, look, we're friends, and if you don't like it, tough. You know, this is, this is how it's going. Some of us have friends like that that we've had our whole life who just came up and said, yeah, we're, we're friends. There's nothing you can do about it. Jason Siebel runs two seven-week-long summer camps in New Hampshire, and he gives some better tips on how to make friends. He says, why don't you take some Legos to camp with you? You know, you can, you can share them, and, and next thing you know, you're building something with somebody, and you've made a friend. Or he said, in a similar way, take, take, some, take a deck of cards. Now, I would say take Uno cards. Uno cards, you can make friends with anyone in the world playing a little bit of Uno. He also says that going a long way would be something like being kind, being polite, being caring, and being respectful. And then he says, a good smile will go a long way. But what happens if someone doesn't share their Legos with you? What happens if no one plays Uno with you? What happens if there's no one who's polite and no one who's caring and no one who's respectful? What happens if no one smiles at you? And what if we aren't just talking about camp? What if we're talking about real life away from camp, even as adults? What if it's hard, it's a struggle to make friends? It's a struggle to keep friends. Or sometimes we have friends that turn their backs on us. What about those days? What about those weeks? What about those months and, and those years? When, when finding friends and keeping friends or having friends kind of stab us in the back or ignore us, what, what do we do then? Is there any hope for those moments? Is there any help for those seasons of life? Well, there is. There's some pretty big-time help and some pretty big-time hope. And we're going to look at it this morning. Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. Now Jesus had just got through saying some pretty hard things. In chapter 14, he, he kind of draws some lines in the sand. And what he's doing is he's drawing some lines and saying some hard things about what it means to follow God. So he says, look, are you really going to be committed to loving the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? Or are you just going to be committed to loving God on Sundays and loving God on Christmas and, and Easter? Are you just going to be committed to loving God when everything's going okay in your life or, or just committed to God as long as your friends don't turn their back on you? Jesus said some hard things about following after God. And what usually happens when people say hard things to us? Now, if we're honest, when people say hard things to us, we, you know, we usually squirm a little. We usually get a little bit angry, maybe. Sometimes when people say hard things to us, we, we do the roll of the eyes thing, you know, or we do the sarcastic smirk thing. 
Sometimes we start trying to think of a way we can defend ourselves when they get through talking. Sometimes we're trying to figure out a way to get out of the conversation altogether. Sometimes we're completely ignoring them and we're just eating our hot pocket and we don't even care what they're saying to us one way or the other. But we all respond to hard things. Hard things make us uncomfortable. And so Jesus, he pulls out the big bat of uncomfortable spiritual conviction. And when he starts swinging it, guess who starts stepping closer? Tax collectors and sinners. And how many of them? Well, Scripture says all of them. (laughs) What does that mean? Well, in order to answer that question, we, we need to make sure we understand who the tax collectors and the sinners are. In ancient times, tax collectors were hated and despised. They were seen as greedy, unpatriotic traitors. They were kind of like contract workers for the Roman government. And what happened is the Roman government wanted some money. They wanted their tax money, and they had a certain amount that they wanted. And as long as they got their amount, they didn't care what the tax collectors did. So this is what the tax collectors did. They used threat, they used force, and they took a lot more money from people than they were supposed to take. And then they would give the Roman government what they wanted, and then they would pocket the rest. So naturally, everybody loved these guys, right? No, they weren't very popular in town. One ancient early church father described them this way. The tax gatherer is the personification of licensed violence, of legal sin, of specious greed. They were loathed in every way. (laughs) That's pretty clear, right? And yet, These people heard Jesus say hard things, and instead of walking away, they actually walked up closer to hear more. So that's the tax collectors. What about the sinners? Well, the sinners were people who were immoral with their jobs, or they were casually immoral with their lives. There was immorality marking everything about who they were on a daily basis. Now, let me take just a, a brief moment to kind of sidetrack for a second and just hopefully challenge and encourage our church with a little bit of a detour. So I really do my best uh, every week to worship God, honor the Bible, and love our church with my sermon preparation. And I pray over and think through the words that I say. And sometimes the words that I say will not always come out perfectly. And sometimes the words I say you will not agree with. But I work really hard to make sure that I don't ever say anything that would contradict God's word. And part of God's word is there's some difficult topics in God's word. Some things that are are difficult to hear and difficult to study and difficult to read through. And one of those things is all the many branches in Scripture concerned with sexual immorality. And there's some words that the Bible uses. And, And as parents and as grandparents and as teachers and as a church, we need to do everything we can to wisely encourage our kids and our grandkids with the truths around those words that the Bible uses. Wife and mom, Melissa Kruger, recently wrote this. A friend recently shared how she explained to her daughter the importance of context. Imagine putting mustard on ice cream. (laughs) Yeah, that had to sit for a second. All right, I just have to ask, does anyone actually do this? I mean, because I used to eat mayonnaise and jelly sandwiches when I was growing up. So, I mean, I'm just assuming somebody puts mustard on ice cream, but you didn't admit it, so that's okay. We'll, We'll let you go. She goes on to say, Two enjoyable items become repugnant when placed together. 
Similarly, sexuality discussed in the wrong setting becomes distasteful. And then she says this, We should carefully guard our children from images, influences, and books that may shape their understanding in unbiblical ways. However, the church has the ability to provide the proper context for these topics. In other words, when it comes to these hard words of of culture and immorality, we should not shy away from them, nor should we explain away, especially what the Bible says about immorality. In fact, what we should do is pray that God would give us grace and wisdom and that we would be wise in teaching and training and guiding our kids and our grandkids and really each other in these sins of immorality that Jesus died to wash his white snow. So we don't miss the words and we don't shy away from them and we don't explain them away, but we ask for God's guidance to deal with them. Now, that I have everyone terrified that I'm going to say something of, you know, grand immorality, it's okay, I'm, I'm really not. I just thought it would be good for us to know that there's a reason that we should use the Bible's words and we should explain them as they are. So, I'm not going to say anything crazy, just a good detour for just a moment. And now we go back to where we were. And what we were saying was this, is that the sinners that Luke is describing, they are people who were professionally immoral with their jobs, or they were casually immoral with their lives. Immorality just marked who they were. They were liars, they were cheaters, they were criminals, they were drug dealers, they were prostitutes, they were crooked politicians, they were party animals and tax collectors, they were, they were sinners. And the super religious people, known as the Pharisees, they had a word that they used for people like that. And the word means the people of the land. And they had a a regulation about the people of the land. And the regulation goes like this. William Barclay wrote it down. When a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him, take no testimony from him, trust him with no secret. Do not appoint him guardian of an orphan. Do not make him the custodian of charitable funds. Do not accompany him on a journey. Stay away from this guy. Now, I do think you could share your snack packs with them, and I think you could probably put in a patio with the guy, but other than that, stay away from the people of the land. Have nothing to do with them. Needless to say, they were outcast. They were known as the untouchables. They were despised in many ways. And Luke, non-accidentally, writes that all of those people started getting closer to Jesus. Why? Why were the outcasts? Why were the untouchables? Why were the criminals and the prostitutes and the drug dealers? Why were the people who had no friends and could keep no friends and who could make no friends? How come those people were getting closer to Jesus? Was well, because Jesus was approachable. Jesus shared. Jesus was polite, he was caring, he was respectful. And Jesus, his smile went a long way. Now, Jesus was not an an etiquette robot, okay? He was polite, but he was not a pushover. He was gracious, but he was not a groveler. And he was very clear in the things that he said. He was very clear in his teachings about God. 
In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. And then he follows up with this in verse 14, For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus was clear about what it meant to follow after God, that the path was wide and many would find that. But the path behind Jesus was very narrow and few would find it. Jesus also said there is a real place called heaven and there is a real place called hell. He was clear about it, spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Jesus was always clear about the kingdom. He was always clear about God. He was always clear about what it meant to love and follow and be committed to God. It was always clear. He didn't pull any punches, but the tax collectors and the sinners, they, they heard Jesus with these hard teachings, and they, they got closer. Why? Well, see, in this moment, Jesus had just gotten through telling a parable, kind of a, a story about real life, something that could really happen in real life, but it was supposed to, to give a picture to real life people about how they were supposed to do life. And at the very close of the parable, these tax collectors and these sinners, they heard Jesus say this, Luke 14, 23. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. In other words, Jesus is telling this huge crowd of people this parable and he gets to the end and he goes, guess what happens next? Then the liars and the cheaters and the prostitutes, and the criminals, and the drug dealers, and the crooked politicians, the jerk husbands, the nagging wives, the rebellious children, the tax collectors, the sinners, they were invited to the king's banquet table. Can you imagine a tax collector in that crowd? Everyone in that crowd hated his guts. And he hears Jesus say, there's room at the table for you. Imagine a prostitute in this crowd. Everyone in town devalued her humanity. She didn't even exist as human to them. And yet she hears Jesus say, there's room at the table for you. That's why they drew near. But that's why they drew near. These outcasts, these untouchables, these people who could not make friends or keep friends, these people who were despised and rejected, they heard Jesus say that they could be rescued, they could be saved, and that one day they could sit at God's banquet table as loved and honored guest. They drew near to that. They drew near. Listen, if you're not a Christian, we want you to know that invitation is still alive and well. You are still invited, and we compel you to come. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 says this, 
The former priest, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Lots of priests because they were going to die out. Then verse 24. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds priesthood permanently. It's good news. Fantastic news. Why? Verse 25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, Jesus and only Jesus is able to save forever. Love how the King James says this. He is able to save them to the uttermost that come into God by him. See, that's how Jesus saves. He saves to the uttermost. He saves to the highest of the highest heavens. And he saves forever and ever and ever. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. And no power of hell and no scheme of man and no disease and no rejection by a friend and no rejection by the community, absolutely nothing can ever change the uttermost. Nothing. To be saved by Jesus to the uttermost, to be saved by Jesus forever and ever and ever means nothing can ever touch that. That's the nature of what it means to be saved by Jesus. Let me drop some cool words from the 1800s on you. Well, they're, they're cool to me. Octavius Winslow. Oh, if there were a sinner... Out sinning all sinners, every sin tainting every crime attaching to him, and abandon, oh, I can't remember how to say this word. I mean, I even looked it up this morning. I was like, I'm going to say that word wrong. When I get there, I'm going to freeze and I'm going to say the word wrong. Let's say profligate because I'm going to try. And abandon profligate. An unbelieving scorner, a reviling blasphemer, a red-handed murderer, a profane infidel, a daring atheist, a moral parasite whose transgressions have broken a mother's heart and bowed a father's gray hairs in sorrow to his grave. Sins as scarlet and red as crimson, as a cloud for darkness, and as the sands on the seashore for multitude. If I say there be such a one whom Jesus would not save and could not save, and then he says this, then there would be silence in heaven and exultation in hell at the announcement that Jesus Christ had ceased to save to the uttermost bounds of sin and guilt all who in penitence and faith came to God through him. It's big. But here's the truth of the gospel. There is no sinner who can out sin all other sinners and never be saved and redeemed by Jesus. There's no one. No one's too far. No one's too far out. No one can out sin the grace of God. There is always hope in Jesus. There is the ability for many to be saved and for any to be saved. Winslow goes on. He receives sinners 
Hear it, you that are far off, wandering in ignorance and sin. Hear it, you who amid the tortures of a guilt-oppressed conscience are inquiring, what must I do to obtain mercy and forgiveness? Hear it, you who once walked in the way of holiness, but have turned aside to sin and folly. Hear it, you who are resigning yourselves to dark despair. Oh, hear it, all you poor and wretched, you humble and penitent, you brokenhearted and burdened. You know what was happening that day as Jesus was talking? The sinners and the tax collectors, they were hearing it. They were hearing it. And they drew near. All of them. They all drew near. In other words, for the very first time in their life, the reason they all drew near is for no other reason than they had never heard anything like this before. It was the first time this amazing group of outcasts heard the great news of the gospel. They heard that that they could be made right with God. How? Through Jesus. Through Jesus. But not everybody was listening. Not everybody was hearing it. Listen to verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And these were some of the church folks, and they were not hearing it. <laughs> they, they were not dialed in. They didn't like this invitation that Jesus was given. In fact, it says they were grumbling. Don't you hate that moment when you're sitting in a, a group of people, and, and all of a sudden your stomach, you know, sounds like a German shepherd that's getting ready to get angry, you know? And you're just kind of sitting there, and there's that awkward moment, and, and you kind of look around, and you go, <laughs> I forgot to eat breakfast, sorry. <laughs> And, and he, it's just awkward. You know, it's just, you just feel that little bit of, of shame that your stomach growled and everybody in the room heard it. These guys were grumbling and they felt no shame. None. <laughs> they did not say, oh, did we just say that out loud? No. No, they knew they were grumbling out loud. They knew what they were thinking. They knew what they were saying. They did not like this invitation from Jesus. They did not like the fact that, that Jesus was not just wanting to associate with these tax collectors and sinners, but he was actually giving them hope that they might be able to come into God's church. No, they didn't like that at all. Let's see if we can make this a little uncomfortable. So Stephen Cole tells a story I've kind of adjusted for us a little bit. And it's a story of two families. Once upon a time, there's two families. They were neighbors. They live right next door to one another. The first family, they were a Christian family. Their house always looked nice. Their yard was always well manicured. <laughs> That's not always a Christian thing, by the way, because, you know, let's just cut each other some slack, okay? But they were, they were a good family. The, the kids were good, and, and they were real kind to one another. They made good grades. This was a family. They didn't, they didn't drink, and they didn't dance, and they didn't smoke, and they didn't do drugs, and, and they didn't watch reality TV. I mean, they were just, you know, they were a good, you know, good, good family. And then they had some neighbors next door. And the neighbors next door, they weren't like the other family. The other family, they went to church all the time. The, the other family, they, they never went to church. They didn't care much for God. 
Yeah, their, their house was never nice and neat. Their yard was never nice and neat. There was always a you know, car up on blocks in the driveway. There was always beer cans in the bushes. There was always the strange smell of illegal house plants all around the neighborhood coming from their house. They did dance and drink and smoke and, and do drugs and watch reality TV, and, and their kids were always in trouble with everybody at school, and they were in trouble with the law. And that family, they didn't, they didn't go to church, <laughs> not at all. And so one day, the daughter of the Christian family, she, she came home. She said, Dad, the kids next door were talking to some of their friends at school, and, and they were saying that their parents are, are getting a divorce. Her dad was watching the football game, and he didn't look away from the screen. He just said, well, you know, I'm not surprised. And then his team did something great, and he just started cheering and, and completely tuned her out. So she went in the kitchen to talk to her mom. She told her mom what was going on, and her mom said, well, you know, I'm not really surprised, you know. I mean, we see how they live. And, you know, they don't go to church. So let that be a lesson to you, young lady, that if you grow up and think one day you shouldn't go to church, let, you, let this just be a lesson. You need to listen and watch and pay attention. And then she said, you know, maybe, maybe they'll sell the house and, and move away, and maybe we'll finally get some decent neighbors next door. Sadly, the family did split up, and the house was sold, and, and a new family moved in. And the new family, they, they were decent. Their kids made good grades. They were in the honor roll. They weren't in trouble with the law. They didn't drink or dance or smoke or do drugs, watch reality TV. Their, their house was always nice. The yard was always nice. They even went to church on Christmas and Easter. So, I mean, they, they even had that you know, going for them. And so that first family, they finally got some decent neighbors. Now, that's just a story, but it's got a little bit of punch to it, doesn't it? Now, that doesn't mean that we should be excited about illegal or immoral activity happening next door. That's, that's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is just a little bit of an attitude check for us as Christians. You see, Jesus approached tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus was approachable to tax collectors and sinners. Can the same thing be said about us? See, we need to be the, the type of people that if we're going to claim to follow after Jesus, we need to be the kind of people with our attitudes and our actions that people would know we are saying to them, you can come to Jesus. You can approach Jesus. Jesus is a friend to lost sinners. And why would we say that to people? Well, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, here's why you would say it. You used to be the tax collector, and you used to be the lost sinner, and Jesus received you. Jesus, the Son of God, received desperate, wretched, penitent sinners, scoundrels like Dow Welsh, sinful scoundrels like me and you. Jesus received us. He received us. Media outlets this week have been reporting the last few days a lot about Iran 
I have another Iran story, but not like the ones you are seeing in the news. The story is from just a few months ago. It's from a young Iranian woman that we just know as Nadia. Don't know any other than her name. Nadia was the first Christian in her family. In other words, she was the first sinner that Jesus received in her family. And this is what she writes. When I shared the gospel with my mother, she said that at her age of 60, she could not change. But over time, God's sovereign love wooed and won her heart. And today, she worships Jesus. I shared Jesus with my nephew. Today, he worships Jesus. When my sister-in-law had a problem, I prayed for her and shared a Bible verse. Today, she worships Jesus. My sister saw the change in my life. Today, she worships Jesus. One of my brothers was an atheist, but today he worships Jesus. I saw 11 people come to Christ, but my father did not. My father had left my mother for a woman my age. It inflicted a lot of pain on the family, and for a long time, nobody spoke with him. But God put it on my heart to call and talk with him. One day on the phone, my father told me he had cancer. His young wife had left him. My mother, who had grown in faith, bravely decided to go and care for him on his deathbed. Can I just say a moment for our mothers? If you're a mother whose heart has been captured by Jesus, you can do amazing things like that. You will not always be able to do it on your own motherly strength, but mom and Jesus can do great things. Great things. My mom bravely decided to go and care for him on his deathbed. Three days before my father died, I called and spoke to him one last time. It was difficult, but the Lord put it in my heart to share the gospel once more. I told him about the dying thief next to Jesus on the cross. Like the thief, I told him, you can still be forgiven. My mother was there and held his hand as he smiled and asked Jesus to forgive and redeem him. This man receives sinners. This man, Jesus, receives sinners. He receives sinners. Jesus saves. Jesus saves.